MacFab gives you more electronics manufacturing options so you can get to market faster. Now with one platform, you have access to several factories in North America for all your manufacturing needs. Skip the line by using factories with an immediate manufacturing capacity for PCB assembly and system integration. That's also called BuildBox. Go from prototype to high volume production with one manufacturer, MacroFab, and take advantage of our lower cost through automated platform-driven processes and relationships with key part distributors and manufacturers. Learn more at MacFab.com. Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Greg Paulson. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 197. Greg is the leader of the application engineering team at Zometry, an online instant quoting platform for custom manufacturing projects, which utilizes a professional network of thousands of manufacturers. His background is in applied additive manufacturing, having experience as an engineer, running machines, and ultimately using the parts. Greg was last on the podcast for episode 181, where we talked zometry, pizza, and digital manufacturing. Welcome back, Greg. Happy to be here. Um, been uh, been listening even more since the last podcast. Uh, I'm a few episodes behind, but uh, um, I, I think we are we're, we are Moss buddies, like manufacturing as a service, like enthusiasts, and uh, I've I found kinship with Macrofab. I've I've not heard that before, or heard it said that way. Moss buddies. I, I like yeah. that. It's like a Taco Bell live Moss. You know, we can, we can just go on and on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So this time we're going to be talking about 3D printing and kind of like the design aspect of 3D printing and, you know, instead of just like machines and, and, and uh, tools and stuff, but like actually like the specifications that go behind like building your thing out of 3D printing uh, processes. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to talk about, and that's really what it's about, right? So all these things are means to end. So a lot of times we focus up in the sky on processes, and um, I've even seen in the past like, oh, well, what's the difference between FDM and SLS? And really, the question is, what the hell is FDM or SLS? You know, what do these acronyms <laughs> stand for? So I think it comes down to kind of knowing which uh, what these processes do, right? You know, and what do the parts look like, and then we can actually go back and figure out, uh, you know, how to actually design well for each one of these processes and when to use what. Yeah, because I would imagine since they're basically, these processes are different 3D printing uh, topographies would be a good word for it, I think. Maybe. They call them like families sometimes. Families? Like ASTM, yeah, yeah. Methods. And, and yeah, so, I mean, but it, all in all, like 3D printing, I think by, de by definition, and I kind of use uh, Terry Wohler's uh, definition. He's an analyst that's been in the industry for forever. Um, but it, by definition, it is the um, CAD-defined generation of object, uh, typically layer by layer, uh, by uh, curing or fusing a lesser material material together. So uh, fusing a filament, fusing a, um, a powder with, uh, with laser, for example, um, curing liquid resins. Uh, you're taking something that is kind of this amorphic material and you are using some sort of energy agent to bond it together and kind of stack it up on itself and bond it to itself. So um, we, we always talk about it. it's not just getting those layers side by side to glue, to glue in together. It's actually to fuse underneath. That gives you your third dimension, hence 3D, and, and build these parts up. And what's unique about that versus, you know, milling or injection molding is that, you know, milling I'm taking from a larger stock, right? I'm, I'm taking a, um, you know, a piece of billet material, a rod stock, and I'm forming, shaping, bending, using a die and uh, sometimes, and I'm reducing it down to a shape uh, and that means that my mindset when I'm like doing something like machining is almost the mindset of a um, you know like thinking in cylinders like what can I make my drill do like how can I go and butt it up to the side of this part to make a feature how do I like how can I access this by making something that has almost a linear projection and and everything that we know 
like everything that your, your paradigm is around right now is around this idea of directional approaches to manufacturing. So even when we look at molded parts, uh, if you're doing injection mold enclosure, for example, uh, injection molds are CNC machined. So the basic principles are the same from a, you know, from a standpoint of design for manufacturability has to do with access. How can I access this with a tool that's protruding from something and get into the build those features? So when I build complexity with traditional manufacturing, CNC machining, molding alike, I'm adding axes, I'm adding specialized tooling, I'm adding angles. Uh, but I, when I flip that on the end and say, I have this amorphic material, you know, I have a, uh, you know, my 3D printer, I'm actually able to think more about, uh, it's almost like a rooted method, like, like tree roots or tree branches, like where, how can I stack and build and grow out? And it has, it's a completely different mindset for building, you know, features. Uh, so uh, it's, it's something that is almost learned by tribal knowledge a lot, uh, software is catching up. Um, but it's a very, very different mindset uh, from an approach to building, and especially design if you're designing specifically to build parts and additive for the for its full life. Something though that that uh, is interesting, like yeah, for, uh, sure. When it comes to subtractive manufacturing, like CNC, you do have to think of everything as how's my bit actually going to get in there and and do it. But but there is still directionality with 3D printing because the bed or however the the uh, the actual layers are deposited still comes from a particular direction. Uh, you you still I mean you do have to think about it in a in a in a different way. And uh, and certainly, what I've seen in the past is uh, there 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 almost seems to be like an optimal way to place something in a bed, such mm -hmm. that you get you get different prints based off of different directions, uh, which is sort of different from subtractive, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like, so a lot of these directional approaches for the vast majority of these processes, uh, like what I think about of you know FDM, which is very akin to what most desktop three D printers are, and that's where I have my spool of uh, plastic filament, you know, I'm melting it out and extruding out with, you know, a, you know, a small nozzle. That nozzle is basically being controlled uh, um, to do its best interpretation of what your CAD is. And this, and we'll go to tolerances in a second here, but it's the, the machine's trying its darndest to make that shape. And uh, yeah, you're right. You're working in a, in a world of gravity. You know, you're working in with a world with constraints and even you're working with a thermoplastic. So plastics themselves, they behave differently as they cool, right? So just like injection molding, where uh, you can, if I have uneven wall thicknesses and things like that, the actual cooling of the part can make your, uh, make your features curl up and warp and sink. Uh, you have some of those, but in more like kind of a micro level. So like, it's almost like doing a bunch of little micro welds uh, when you're building together. So with FDM, uh, so that fused deposition, or sometimes it's called fused filament fabrication, you are um, fusing it to a build table because one, gravity exists. You know that's that's a thing there. But uh, two, you're you're holding that that structure and it actually needs a, almost like a a datum to to reference off of. And when you're building uh, building parts up from that, you're building on a plane by plane basis. So like a, we always call them slices, which which I'm taking my 3D model and I'm uh, chopping it into these uh, little 2D images based off the layer heights. So if my layer height is 10,000, like every 10,000, I have a 2D image cross section of that part. And in general, like when I think in 3D, like for 3D printing and 3D setups, a lot of times my mind instantly tilts that part. It you know it instantly tilts a tilts it to a 45 degree angle um, too because sometimes to your point, it's um, there's, there are optimal pathways in order to get as many features to build what we call natural, which is unsupported, um, versus building. If I, a lot of times if you have a, a shape or design and you just set it flat on the ground, it's going to have a lot of, uh, areas under, under shadow. And that means I have to actually build sacrificial structure underneath called support structure to compensate for that. And it takes longer to do it that way. It takes longer sometimes because I'm doing the support structure, um, and uh, yeah, it's a, and so I can be a little bit fancier by mitigating the supports on this. Now, on a desktop, um, it's more of a kind of like a pain in the butt, and uh, and also it's also a, a challenge because I have usually cosmetic uh, differences because I actually have to kind of peel off that structure, and that structure is made of the base material I'm already using. So if I'm making my part out of 
uh, let's say like, you know, uh, nylon or, or ABS, I'm building my supports out of that. And then I got to kind of snip them off and sand it down. And I have some cosmetic issues. So sometimes I like to uh, mitigate support just because of that. But ultimately, um, with, uh, you know, with industrial platforms, which is my, my experience, you know, 12 years, you know, working has always been in industrial uh, manufacturing, additive manufacturing platforms. You were, we're angling that to build naturals, yeah, again, like to mitigate that support structure. And, uh, and also, uh, we find that just adding an angle to any of these three-dimensional parts helps give the properties of the part itself um, a little bit more, uh, how do I say it? or I'll say a little bit less extreme differences uh, because if I take something that is built vertically like a pencil, if I, if I set that pencil vertically, uh, it can snap very easily because the between layer of adhesion is just that little circle going through. But if I build it at a diagonal, uh, sometimes that laser, layer of adhesion is a lot stronger because now you have this kind of like oblong to oval shape as a cross section. So sometimes it's not just about hey, you know, what's most efficient? It's about, hey, what's the function of this? Like, I'm actually using this part. Like, or, you know, you know, I've obviously worked for Zometry and our, our engineers who set up, do these build setups, they are looking at it and they're looking at feature sets, kind of thinking, what is, you know, what is the customer mentality? And they're actually oriented not just for what's most efficient or saves the most cost. It's actually more about what's the function of this? Like, are there snap tabs? Are there other features? And they're orienting, orienting based off what's going to resolve the best for that. You know, actually, uh, as a little bit of a side tangent, um, Park and I were discussing this a little bit earlier. Um, I'm I'm curious, so uh, as an engineer, if I knew I had a part that I wanted to be um, 3D printed, and let's say let's go with the pencil example, how do I specify to my manufacturer? Don't print it vertically; print it horizontally or at an angle or something like that. What's the best way to get that point across? If I have the secret sauce of what direction it should be printed. So, I mean, our side. Oh, yeah, just, yeah, to expand on that. Sorry, Greg. To expand on that would be like you know, like let's say it was a bracket, and you know the loading force is going to be this certain direction. Yeah, how do you explain that to? a a a shop to get that made so uh i used to do this uh, so my background uh, before zometry i worked in product development and um i was the guy making drawings and it was actually very interesting because uh the way that we worked with um 3d prints was we always treated them like a net shape so the actual part like if you're used to running the erp the actual part id was a part that had post-finishing, like was drilled, milled, sanded down and every, uh, to its final form. And then we had a subcomponent, which was the STL file, which I would send out to the 3D printing. So like the demand for that part would require one 3D print of this. And we treat it as a... <laughs> it's as a single a item bomb. It's a single item bomb, but it was the only cheat I could do with the ERP to make 3D printing make sense. And... Uh, and uh, I would, with that, it had its own individual drawing, and the drawing usually had a kind of a Z, like a little Z with an up arrow, uh, pointing for a Z direction, uh, and that was actually a pretty clear-cut way of communicating uh, what's important, and even like putting in important dimensions, critical dimensions, uh, which is something that again, it's, it's for reference more than anything else, but it's something to know like what's important uh, for this. A really good example is uh, again, we're ta we're talking about something that's moving in an X Y axis, and then it has this Z travel. Whenever I lean things, um, there can be a little bit of wobble. Although these machines are actually really precise and really repeatable, but just just uh, let's just say that if I build a cylinder on a diagonal, or build a cylinder on its side, or build a build a cylinder vertical. Um, Honestly, the vertical is always going to come out more consistent with the roundness of the shape. Uh, so sometimes you have features, especially with additive manufacturing, where uh, I have multiple angles of directions of stuff happening. So I take a multi-part assembly, right? So a lot of times you can take a look at assemblies and uh, say you have a little collet that gets tightened up with a, um, you know, with a threaded insert and a screw in one direction that's holding a camera. And then you have, you know, kind of an off-angle feature that is, you know, say a venting port, for example. And, and you have a, you know, another thing that actually hooks up to the main ch chassis of your body that's going, you know, perpendicular to everything else. All of a sudden, it's, it's very important to communicate to your um, to your vendor or to whomever you're working with this is the most important thing 
because I may actually change my whole orientation around that most important thing to make it print vertical so that it's being scanned in that uh, kind of the XY direction, which has the most stable control to it. Um, sometimes, again, it's inherent. Like sometimes you just like when I look at a part uh, in CNC milling, I can pretty much tell you if it's going to be a lathe part or if it's going to be a CNC milled part just because all of a sudden, if I start seeing lots of trends of axial directions, then I'm probably going to say, hey, this is a turned part and I know which direction it's going to be. But being able to being able to communicate that tribal knowledge is sometimes more, more difficult. And that's where a quick drawing or just a little note saying, this thing's critical. Like, that's all you need to do because most of the time these techs, they've made more parts than you'll ever make in your life. And they, they kind of know the best way to orient. Um, I'll tell you that there are exceptions uh, to this. So this is, uh, say I'm doing FDM, and uh, say I'm making something that's the size of a dinner plate. But it just so happens that the dinner plate is a cap to a, you know, another dinner, dinner plate piece, and it has snap tabs. So this is where we run into trouble. Because, like I said, if I build something that's thin, like a thin and cantilevered vertically, in a lot of our processes, not all these processes, but for, for example, that fused filament, it's going to be a lot weaker. And that's where you kind of have to make this trade-off because building a dinner plate vertically will probably raise the price of it by an order of magnitude because all <laughs> of a sudden you have, hey, you guys are taking 12 inches of my Z and uh, and if I'm running at, you know, 10,000 layers, that's a lot of layer, uh, layer start stops, um, a lot of cleaning for the nozzle. And the most most expensive thing is not material. It's time. You know, these machines are often, you know, several hundred thousand dollars from a service level. And you're talking about, you know, an hourly overhead rate that will easily consume any material cost that you're concerned about uh, on these on these platforms. So one of the things that we kind of raise our hand on, if you show me that that piece and then you're like, this is important. Also, these snap tabs don't won't break. That's when I raise my hand and say, listen, I. I have six other 3D printing processes that may help you out here, and that's why I switch you over. So when I think about FDM, uh, I think about parts that are designed that work well for CNC machining. But the second that we start going into enclosures, housings, uh, things that have more organic shapes, I start to lean you towards things that have this more, uh, like more of an amorphic uh, material like selective laser sintering or multi-jet fusion. Which, base, which is based off like a powder bed system. So there's also design cues that may change, uh, change uh, us over that way. So FDM, when you're designing, you have, like I said, you have a very stable XY. You could build long, broad, flat features. Uh, you can, we, our machines can build up to 36 inches, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's a like industry big um, for 3D printers. And, uh, but but it's weak. It's weak on the small pieces. Like it's weak on the small stuff, the small detail features. You know, cantilevered things. I call them the god pins, where you have this beautiful, you know, part. It costs a thousand dollars, and then you have a you know quarter inch long pin that protrudes, you know, three quarter inches vertical and it snaps up immediately. And at that point, I'm like, <laughs> at that point, I kind of sit back and I'm like, if your part will, if the gravity, like literally the weight of your part, will break a feature on your part. Then you may want to look at make that feature replaceable. Maybe design it as a whole, and you know, buy a 20-pack of pins from McMaster uh, that you can stick in there, and you know, sacrificial pins all day long. Um, but there's, you know, there's there's things that it's, FTM is really good at, and then there's things where all of a sudden it really, really starts poking to another process. Um, I'm an SLS fanboy. Like I, I've uh, that, and that's because when I when I was running. Um, um, running machines myself, I was running a selective laser sensory machine. I actually got exposed uh, to that uh, in grad school at James Madison University. I think that machine ended up at Virginia Tech now, but uh, at that time we had some, we had it there, and I just fell in love with this stuff. Um, so SLS doesn't require support structure. It it is actually a laser that's fusing nylon powder together to make those shapes. Um, but instead of having support it is kind of self-supporting in the, its own heated material. So if you think about this powder like, um, like a flower almost, everything is heated up in that chamber to close to around 140 Celsius. And uh, this chamber, is, uh, it's, it's nitrogen controlled, it's inert gas, like this whole thing is just a giant uh, temperature controlled sensitive oven. 
and you are going layer by layer, but when those little selective um, cross sections are being melted by a laser, it's not like this full-on blast melt. It's just a gentle nudge from a you know from a powder state to a melted state. So it's it's already almost at the transition yeah, state. Yeah, because it, okay. it's usually melting right around that, like kind of like a hundred and sixty-ish or so, um, uh, by temperature-wise, at Celsius and. Uh, and so you have this, you have this uh, powder uh, powder bed, and since it's so hot already, the material doesn't kind of flex up. So say I had a completely cool powder, uh, like completely cool room temperature bed, and I did the same thing with a laser. What you'll see is it'll almost look like wax, kind of peeling up, like curling up on itself, because the second that it hits it with a laser, it expands, and then it wants to contract and when it starts to contract, it'll, it's kind of like, you know, doing a curl up, you know, it just starts peeling up on itself. And we actually call it peeling, by the way, in the industry, because uh, it can give you a very bad evening because uh, it, it'll jam your rollers and things. But the, uh, um, but uh, by keeping everything near melting temperature, it just kind of chills. It, uh, it stays, um, stays in the same place. And as my Z layers get uh, stacked on and on, I'm able to continually build uh, the other beautiful thing about this is since I don't use a port structure, I'm not constrained by that, you know, gravity, if you will, that you have with most of these processes. You're not just sticking it to a part bed. So now an SLS and a multi-jet fusion uh, works in a similar way, different melt way, uh, different path to melting those parts, but very similar process. And even the base material is exactly the same. Um, they are kind of floating in space so I could actually nest multiple parts together. So SLS tends to be cheapest um, of all the 3D printing process from an industrial standpoint because it's not that the, the process is cheap itself. It's not that the machines are cheap. It's that I can just build so many parts that I actually get scale with it. I get an economy of scale uh, with those processes. Uh, but I, I like it because uh, I have that freedom of design. Um, it tends to be more forgiving in that Z direction. Uh, it tends to have more uh, what we call it isotropic results. It's not perfect, but it's better. It's a lot better, um, especially compared to FDM, which just has these extreme swings uh, uh, depending on what direction of, tra of travel your uh, your design's going. And uh, and also because I was I was in this, you know, you're able to uh, kind of treasure hunt to get the parts out. So it's also it's kind of fun and almost therapeutic to clean out uh, um, in the mornings. <laughs> So that that's other things I just I remember this so fondly. I'm sure at the time it was hell because you're talking about even as, even as it's cooling down, sometimes this material is like near boiling temperature. When you take out this giant block of what we call like cake, it looks like a a big rectangle of white powder. And I remember uh, in the morning we we just happened to have one of these at our engineering firm. Um, we would take out this powder and uh, and I just put two uh, two nitrile gloves on. And just hope I didn't scald my hands because I just be like okay, I put on my uh, earbuds, start listening to like an audio book, put on my cans, put on my respirator, and just go to town. And you stick your hands in this near boiling hot material as you're, as you start to like tr dig through for your parts. In reality, like if you're a service bureau, you usually let a day, to, you let like 18 hours to cool and do all that. But I was working in product development, so you know every every hour counted. So we, we were a little bit more rushed on the jobs. Um, also lower Z height, so it wasn't like insane, but it was a. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it was very cool because you could just quickly quickly iterate designs, and since it was so cheap on a per part, because you're able to stuff the machine full of parts, uh, you could start thinking in uh, shotgun approaches of design. So uh, this was designed for injection mold a lot of times that we're using SLS as a surrogate for for rapid prototyping, but we would try six configurations and just print them all at once. And then give them to our stakeholder and be like, choose two or choose one, and we'll go, we'll start working off of that. So it was our own genetic algorithm of figuring that out. You know, <laughs> trying off running running an evolutionary pattern. You know, calling five of them, going on this one, six more configurations, go and go. Yeah, if you have if you have the bed space, and then that totally works out. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so the big difference between, uh, at least from a design standpoint, from SLS to FDM is. You don't have to worry too much about overhangs with SLS, correct? Yeah, you don't have to worry about overhangs. Now, let's go back to... Oh, here's the butt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, that being said, it's all, it's all fun and games until the, everything starts cooling down. So here's what can happen. 
say I say I'm I'm using running a typical platform for SLS machines. Although there are like larger, kind of like double size platforms, the ones that I prefer uh, tend to be about 13 by 13 by 23 inches. And the biggest reason why is you can stuff it full and still be done in about 26 hours printing. Um, and from a from a process workflow standpoint, if you're running it as a as a service industry, uh, that allows you to essentially have um, you know one set of uh, one one build of parts being made. Um, what these cha- these trays can be changed out. One of these trays can be cooling, and the one of them can be broken out. So you could actually have a perfect little three day schedule uh, with one machine of parts being made cooling broken out so like you could have very consistent three-day lead times uh with these type of parameters um but the uh, uh so i start printing and say i have a part i'm 30 by 13 inches say you have a 14 inch part if i am building a 14 inch part i'm building a vertical that and i'm building this uh, so again this build could be you know when i first start that first layer the first four and a half thousand uh layer of that part it may that final part may not be complete till 18 hours later, and a lot of weird thermal stuff can happen during that time. So if the part is designed in a way that's self-supporting, so say it has kind of like a lattice structure or like kind of a C shape to it or S shape where it, where it has kind of features that if you if it's if it's the same shape in paper and you set it on a table, it wouldn't fall over then it may be more thermally stable. But say it's just kind of the, you know, a long, thin feature. All of a sudden, I get very strange stressing and cross-linking across these parts, and especially once the parts start cooling uh, out of, outside the build, I can get a lot of weird stress, and I start to see warping. So warping occurs, and it's, very, it's probably the most frequent complaint about the SLS platform is going to be a warping of long, broad, flat parts. And uh, and again, like a good rule of thumb is if I can grab a feature of my of my part and the rest of the part sags, then probably this this feature is going to be prone to warping uh, because it's not it's not supporting itself. Um, but in general, sometimes it's just something unavoidable uh, because I have this you know I have this uh, unconstrained. It's not fit by support structure. It's not you know essentially bound down to a a build table, um, so I have I have it kind of de-stressing and cooling in a freed environment. Uh, one of the things that I kind of talk about when I do webinars and other series uh, with 3D printing processes is SLS. I, I talk about the rule of the fist, which is the best size part for SLS. Even though I have this 13 by 13 by 23 inch build area, is basically parts around the size of the fist. Tolerances tend to be very stable. Uh, for the for the processes, your feature detail tends to be you know generally good, and I can stack a bunch of them in a machine at once. So my scalability, my price is good as well. So you don't always want to kind of focus on the like, hey, what's the biggest you could print? That may not be the right question. It's you know more about like what your project is, you know what your budget is, and what your goals are. And like can't, you know sometimes it makes sense even like if you're building a jigger fixture, sometimes it makes sense to just parse it out into smaller uh, smaller pieces. Uh, just because it actually tends to be more economical and sometimes prints faster because you don't have this giant Z constraint uh, behind it. Um, but yeah, and I just want to note on multi-jet fusion because it's it, in, in no way is it an underdog. It's actually a fantastic performing machine. It's an evolution of what SLS has been. SLS is, was kind of invented in the late 80s, uh, and it's been around for um, it's been around for quite a while, and it really has been perfected in a lot of ways. Multi-jet fusion, uh, which is done by HP, has taken a kind of this concept of high-speed centering, um, which is a different way of, of fusing materials together. And it actually is adding a, it, it does a single pass with kind of this large, long uh, inkjetter, if you will. And, the, and like an inkjet printer, it inks where the parts are going to be. So instead of a laser scanning and making that cross-section like you do in SLS, this inkjet is going across and essentially in one continuous movement, um, inking the cross section. So if you look at this, you see white powder and say you're making a bunch of donut shapes, you see a white powder and then you see a bunch of circles. You know, you, you'll you'll uh, see these uh, show up and then it does a second pass with a heat bar. And essentially all that black inked part areas are gonna absorb more of that heat and create a center effect while the other material where there wasn't any inking there is, is not gonna absorb as much heat, so it remains powder-based. 
So the biggest difference there is that on a part by part basis, okay, no big deal. But 20 parts, 40 parts, my throughput is higher because each layer takes about seven seconds less. And we're dealing with four and a half thousand layers. Seven seconds less could be like getting my build out, you know, six hours sooner. Uh, and uh, if I have a really high scan time, like so that laser is just one little beam going back and forth, it's moving super fast. Like as humans perceiving it, it's really fast, but it's still not doing all that stuff at once. Like so like if you have a consistent layer time like multi-diffusion has, um, the advantage is throughput. So when I start looking at production, uh, using multi-jet is my lean uh, for that. So it's it's surpassing SLS by a production standard uh, because it, it just can do more parts faster. So one-to-one, like one part to one part, you don't see the difference. But if you're if I'm doing 20-20 or 40-40 or you know 300-300, it's a huge difference. So is there any disadvantages to that type of a system or? Um, Multi-jet, your, your parts do come out gray, um, or and oftentimes they're dyed black. Um, but color is coming out with HP right now, so they're they're looking into color, and it's pretty mature. It's it's, it's good. It reminds me of like an early uh, Z Corp color 3D printers uh, back in kind of like 2007-ish or so, um, where the whites are not quite white, but they're pretty good because you haven't had color 3D printing like this before in your life. So you're you're you'll take anything. It's Technicolor, <laughs> um, and. And and it's nylon, so like I, you know, color three D printing exists. Like the uh, Stratasys uh, J750, which is a polyjet kind of this this little inkjetter uh, UV cured uh, machine. It's really good for making these these shapes that can be used as medical models or industrial design models. But as an engineer, I haven't had a lot of use for it um, because polyjet breaks very very quickly. And also, engineers they don't know how to design a VMRL files, which is the other problem. But you know, that's another episode there. Uh, but uh, yeah, engineers don't design in color right now is a, is a problem right now. So full color 3D printing is fantastic, except no one actually knows how to make the export for it. Um, but uh, the I think in the future, we're going to have more and more of these color options available. Uh, so I think the HP is actually going to be leading that. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to just add some stuff or add a logo or do a part mark or something directly with the print. Yeah, think about if you can just like put your QR code of what that part is like on the bottom of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super powerful. And um, and I mean, right now, SLS, I mean, SLS is not like, oh, I have all these, you know, fantastic benefits. I, it, it does have trade-offs. Like the surface finish of both these processes um, is, uh, is grainy, almost like a sugar cube. <coughs> Excuse me. And the, uh, hold on a second here. I'm just going to clear my throat. <coughs> and the, uh, uh, also, you have to dye the material. So, like that's that's the other thing. It's like it's usually it's stark white, and you're kind of stuck with with dyeing to a mono mono color. So, it's still the perception's not as strong as some other materials are for like a cosmetic look. Um, but a lot of people are getting used to it just because of how cheap it is and how available it is right now. Are there any impacts on the functionality and strength of the material based off of the uh, type of manufacturing? So. It's there. There is strength. There are strength differences. Like so, if like like I said, FDM, I I can build more boutique materials, right? So I have like ABS, ASA, Altums. They have wood fills. They have all these type of things, especially in the desktop market. Um, so I can get different accoutrements to enhance my print by materials. Um, but I still do have a directional challenge, right? So like v- uh, vertical thin features tend to be weaker. You know, I have the anisotropic uh, features to it. Processes like SLS, multi-jet fusion, um, even even some of those photopolymer processes, especially carbon, have less uh, challenges with uh, with direction. So I can focus more on those materials, but the materials may be limited. Like like SLS is great, but it's bulk great. Like I have this material and this material only. So you are you are really focused on nylon for those. <coughs> for um, for some of these newer processes like carbon DLS, they kind of are looking at this like, hey, what if we didn't think thermoplastics? Like, what if I'm, I'm thinking just, what can I do with a 3D printer? And so they have these compounded resins that are actually getting a different strength property that act more like a urethane where it has a second post-cure to it. Um, 
and they're, they've actually been looking at this a very different way uh, for, uh, you know, for 3D printing. So it's, it's instead of saying, hey, everybody runs, you know, ABS injection molding, so we, best, we better get the best ABS out here for our 3D printers. They're saying, what can I do for the material properties with, you know, photo curing and how can I optimize that? So Carbon has come out with digital light synthesis. It's similar to uh, SLA, which is another uh, UV cured resin pr uh, process. But essentially, you know, if you think SLS is a powder bed, um, these, uh, these UV cured resin processes are a liquid bed. Um, <clears throat> I'm putting a liquid in. Um, I'm, I'm curing it usually with a UV or digital light projector. And uh, I'm building these parts and I'm either drawing them under or I'm drawing them up. So, so Carbon DLS actually pulls the parts out by projecting underneath. So underneath that transparent window uh, at the bottom of this liquid liquid resin chamber, and they have some cool IP around it that allows them to continuously pull. So they have this, you know, full continuous growing process to make these parts. But my excitement has actually been more about thinking about the material as what material is really good for additive, not just what material is really good for. I already know ABS injection molding, and and carbon has these uh, urethane-based uh, rigid elastomeric polyurethanes, a a urethane-based silicone, a super high tent, a high detail material called cyanide ester, which we found very popular because uh, before that, all we had for high temp was Ultim, which is fantastic, but it's FDM, which sweats the small small stuff. So now we have people doing really small channel detail uh, features using this new printing material. And uh, I'm, I'm more excited about that. Like, you know, anything that gets me a first print is also the final print for production is a really good uh, example of uh, the future of 3D printing. Wow. The, uh, I'm looking at a picture of the Form 3L. I haven't seen that before. That is monstrous uh, for SLA printing. Yeah. Um, yeah, for for SLA, um, like a lot of our platforms are actually 26 inches, no problem. Uh, but for a... Pro summer mid range uh, 3D printer. Uh, the Form 3L is awesome, and they have some really cool technologies that they call it like low force SLA. What it really is is it is like the carbon DLS printers. It's projecting lidar. It's, it's curing from underneath and then building the part up. Um, and the panel that's carrying underneath just happens to be flexible. So usually you have to kind of pluck the SLA part away from that that panel. And that'll sometimes mean I need really beefy support structures uh, because they have to be stronger than the panel adhesion that's happening every single layer. Well, now with their basically by adding flexibility to it, it kind of just gives a nice little peel off and, and you do a lot less support structures and you, you end, up, end up getting less like jerkiness between layers. Because even on these liquid photopolymer bases, you still have a little bit of a uh, kind of a zigzag rigidity um, like like our like layer line stepping, um, which is really apparent in FDM, um, less apparent in SLA. You know, kind of apparent in SLS. But you know, you you um, the more you do to make that transition per Z height smoother, the smoother the the outside results will be as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So one thing I want to talk about, and this kind of goes back to you were talking about a. Uh, designing a print that had a, a a post in it and you know instead of designing the post in it like if you're using like as a locating peg like for mm -hmm. a fixture um, instead of designing it that way you would design it as a whole and then just buy fixturing pins or dowels basically and then put them into your print um i i want to talk more about that and stuff like uh like printing threads mm-hmm or using just put up a, a, a hole there so you use a self tapper uh screw or do you use inserts and trade-offs of those uh those types of systems and and um and the processes as well yeah so i am the biggest believer in commercial off-the-shelf items ever like mcmaster is my speed dial uh so just just understand that not everything needs to be custom and uh, you know, I, I once had a customer uh, where they they, uh, they showed me a design for a potentiometer knob, and I showed them a website like a guitar website where they sold hundreds of versions of potentiometer knobs. Because I'm like, 
sometimes you could buy this stuff for $5 and it doesn't need to be custom manufacturing. Let, let's, let's see how we can help here. My general rule for 3D printing threads is, is don't. Like, unless they're really coarse threads, uh, you're going to run into interference and resolution issues uh, because when I'm using these, these processes, um, each one has a little tiny nuance that can get really annoying on small details. Uh, so uh, fused uh, filaments, right? I am When I'm moving that layer Z up, I have to kind of start somewhere on the next layer. And a lot of times that'll leave a little bul bulbous feature that we call a zipper. And if that if that feature just happens to be generated on your thread, all of a sudden you have a you have a bad day. You have a, you have interference right there. Um, in laser powder bed fusion, uh, you have first off you have you don't have that smooth surface finish, right? You have that matte uh, surface finish to it. But also, I'm using a heat to bond these features together. So I'm using like a, I'm keeping this all at 140 Celsius. I'm hitting it with a laser, and in these small holes, so say I have a small threaded hole, what's going to happen is that heat from one side of that hole is going to radiate to the other side of the hole, while all the heat from all this, since it's a circle, is radiating in all different directions, and actually centers more. So most holes tend to be about 10 thousand smaller than what you expect them to be. So again, if you're you know making a female, a female thread, uh, you're going to have a very tight thread uh, if you don't offset correctly, and then you have to deal with offset and tuning uh, your your parts, which is an iterative process. Um, meanwhile, if you just create the drill diameter for a tapped hole, uh, you know SLF nylon, HP multi-step fusion materials, um, even a lot of our SLA materials and carbon DLS materials tap like butter. Uh, so. I can go in and just tap that that feature out, and you have perfectly smooth machine-like threads uh, to that. Um, I also I'll say for FDM because you have that layer-wise process. Uh, I, I like uh, I like inserts. Uh, so again, designed for a brass, uh, you know, screw to expand or press to fit inserts, and those can easily be inserted in. You don't always need to heat stake or ultrasonic weld inserts in. A lot of those times, the screw to expand is good enough, uh, but even even adding something like a uh, like a heat stake insert is is pretty simple. You do it exactly the same way you would with the injection molder piece, uh, where uh, you you can use either a special tool tip or if you're lazy like me, use one of the screwdriver style tips on your uh, on your soldering iron, and just kind of be gentle with it. And you know once once the heat gets in those inserts, uh, again it'll just flow smoothly right in place. My advice, and again like uh, it's just from experience, is if I'm designing a part and it has threads to it. I'm very likely either tapping or adding inserts as a default. Like I, I, I never think about designing threads unless it's extreme, like a custom thread, like a, you know, like a double helix or something like that, um, where it's just not off the shelf, um, or if it's a very coarse thread where I know, hey, if I offset the surface by three thou, I'll probably be good enough, and and uh, and I'll be able to print it out, knowing I may need to make two. Yeah, and it's, it's also when I uh, I look at projects on online and stuff and people will print threads and stuff. And I'm like, ins inserts are so inexpensive and they just work better. Uh, and they're structurally stronger and all that stuff. But it's also the same thing with bearings is people will print bearings. It's like, <laughs> you can get a skateboard bearing for 10 cents, <laughs> 10 cents. And it works so much better than anything you could ever print. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, bearings are beautiful demonstrators of the freedoms that you can do with complexity in 3D printing, right? So like in SLS, I could I could print free-floating objects as long as they have about half a millimeter gap in between them. And again, I'm going to say, you know, with a bunch of asterisks beside that, but a bearing is a good example. You see that all the time in like 3D printing expos where someone prints it out. And it's, it's a cool example, but you're absolutely right. If I'm practically using a bearing in my project, I will very likely purchase that bearing and use the, the 3D printing process to make the custom part of my feature. Exactly. You know? Yeah. At at the, at the same time, um, press fit uh, threaded inserts are easily obtainable and easy to work with. I mean, you don't have to have crazy machinery. If you're doing prototyping with them, it's really easy to, to work with. Yeah, I have. Um. So, well, now our additive team has it, but... Uh, I'm a big fan of these uh, Stanley kind of yellow cases. They're they're about two inches tall, and they have a bunch of little compartments to them, and you can take the compartments out as you need them. And uh, and we used to just have basically in stock like every single type of every single McMaster insert 
we just bought a pack of them and you you know, put a label on and if someone asks for you know that quarter 20 you just pull that out you you sit by your project take a drill you drill out the holes and you you put in the inserts you know put it back in but uh it's really it's you know from a production standpoint it's also really easy to organize like it's really easy to to add custom with stock components uh in in those ways so i'm a big fan of again pins inserts um even uh um, I know we do a lot of fixed stream for BMW. Um, BMW, they use the 3D printing aspects for the contoured and the custom features. They also add a, have a lot of machining parts because sometimes they just need something that's super stiff and super reliable, and they they uh, you know they live with machine components. But if they're doing a handle um, or if they're doing a, a clamp uh, feature, they're buying that. It's it's just a McMaster uh, feature to it. They're not they're not trying to reinvent a handle. So. Um, it is, it is, you know, when I think about 3D printing, at least the way that I, I use it when I'm looking for a practical, like it's this 3D printed part is designed for 3D printing. It's I look at it more the same way I look like a, as a machine shop uh, part. You know, it's it's going to be something that is designed for that process, and 3D printer just happens to be another tool to make a part. It's not it's not special, but it's also not you know weak. It has really unique uh, opportunities for uh, when it comes to design and freedoms that you have. Yeah, this reminds me is um, back at back at MacFab uh, when Steven was there, we were designing a whole bunch of fixtures for holding PCB panels and stuff. And we designed it out and we made it so that you could it was CNC, not 3D printed, but we made it so you can make it a, make it a flat stock. And so you didn't have to actually like machine features because we had like pegs and stuff where so if you just like handed a 3D model to someone, they'd have to make it out like a half inch piece of aluminum. Instead of like, you know, a 16th inch piece of aluminum. And then you, we just, you know, you'll press the pe uh, pins in and stuff like that. Um, so it, it's one of those um, using using off shelf parts with your custom glue, so to speak, um, which is your your 3D printed part in this case. Yeah. And, and we do it so often, um, you know, on our, on our website, we have we have seven uh, 3D printing processes. The only process that you can't install inserts or get tap is PolyJet. But every other pro process that we have, um, you can like you can just select five inserts and type in which ones you want, and just make sure that your design has the proper hole diameter, like that min hole diameter for that. But we t we take care of the rest, and uh, it it is just so common to do that. And like uh, and again the the beauty of that is that means that all you do is open the box and then you can just assemble your parts. You don't need to think about all those little things. Like even to your example, like with sheet metal, uh, the same thing. Like you, if you want to plug a few inserts in, like we could do that work on the side because it's it's assembly, but it's not really like it's it's still contiguous with the part. So we we kind of call it part manufacturing. Yeah. So now your bomb has two part numbers on it. <laughs> yeah, the the, cha the challenge is that a lot of people design the inserts in as a body in the solid model. So it may be like a solid part file, but it has like extra bodies which are those inserts, and that throws our our quoting engine for a loop. It usually throws out an error uh, or it says, "Hey, this is an assembly. No way. You know, we're blocking you." And they're like, "Why isn't my part uploading?" And uh, and it's usually if you just suppress those features, um, because we we kind of you know if we kind of get it if you have a drawing or if you have a have an image that's enough for us to work off of um, for for incorporating inserts into your design. Well, cool. I think one of the last topics I kind of want to talk about is kind of like the pros and cons of let's say running your own 3D printer versus say using a service like Zometry to order things. Because I know a lot of people on our podcast they're they're makers or or self-starting engineers and so they have their own 3d printer it's like why would they use a a service yeah and my i think my answer is why not both uh you know if i if i was in the shoes and i was starting up as a as a company and i had like hours mattered like you're, you're you can't walk away from a from a growing business you, you can't take time off from it and uh the beauty of a lot of these desktop 3d printers is they tend to be relatively low cost. They may be a pain in the butt, um, which is something from a service end I don't want to deal with. I'll, I'll never use one for you know my service, but they may be maybe enough of a positive in your workflow that you can get some parts out that can have get you kind of a, to a good enough state to move on to your next iteration of project. What services offer is 
access to millions of dollars of equipment and infrastructure without any purchase other than just the part you need. So uh, you can get the material from an industrial printer. These printers are often hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to, to you know, purchase in the first place. And they re usually require their own work cells, uh, personal protective equipment, um, you know, post-processing equipment, personal protective protective equipment for the post-processing equipment. You know, it's it's a it is an entire factory. Yeah, that's actually one thing people don't think about is like an FDM printer that's printing PLA or ABS. It's outgassing into the environment. Like, like I always think it's really funny where it was like, oh, this was MakerBot's big thing was like every engineer at your company could have one on their desk. And it's like. Sure, that's great, except it's off-gassing all these noxious VOCs <laughs> right next to your engineers. It would just yeah, exactly like, what why, you want. Not like a uh, molten plastic, yeah. Uh, um, no, I, it's it's. By the way, speaking of when I when I was uh, you know more running the machines than anything else, so my wife uh, used to say like, "You smell like nylon." Like at the end of the day, cause it, it was everywhere. Like it was, that's, that's the other thing they're talking about is it's also cleanliness. Like I always say, like if you are running the powder bed uh, platform. So whether that is, you know, SLS, HPML chip fusion, uh, metal 3D printing like DMLS, what you really are is you are a maid. You are cleaning constantly. Like there's there's a couple of things I always had with me, uh, you know, when I was when I was running these machines, you know, I had my little pen light for inspection and um, I was using you know, my computer and then I had my shop vac. Uh, these things are always around because there's always powder. There's always stuff that is making a mess, and and so you clean it up. And so, working with a service, you you're you're getting the benefits of the infrastructure, and you're getting capacity that's just crazy big. Like the amount of work that we can do, and the amount of parts that we can produce in days, uh, dwarfs anything that's possible with uh, you know with uh, internal engineering capacity. Like I want, uh, I you know I want our customers to have their own manufacturing, whether it's 3D printing or other things, because it actually makes them better designers, because they're working with those iterations and working with the understanding of what these processes can do really well. Um, but ultimately, when it comes down to a certain material that may just not hit the temperature range, a part size that may just not fit on that printer, um, or hey, you just need this many parts and it only take four weeks for your single printer to do. You can get that in like three days uh, or less. You know, I think our FDM lead times now are down to two days uh, for, uh, um, you know, through through a service company. So there's just a lot of no-brainers that come around come around with that. But in no way is it cannibalized in either direction um, because they both serve a very, very specific and very important need in product development. You know, I would also say something to add on top of that is you also get somewhat of the guaranteed specifications that uh, go along with those machines. So if you want a very known tolerance, uh, you can get that if you're purchasing it. If you're doing it on your own, then it's up to your calibration, right? And, uh, and your calibration can go out. You know, you change the material, you change something else, and you, and you get a deviation um, one of the things that we look for when we vet uh, for what what machines or what classifications to add next is, can I do a print now and be satisfactory? And then can they order you know 30 of them three months from now and get the exact same part? And these industrial platforms, again, mechanically, the deposition of material and stuff may be very similar to what you have on these you know on these you know sub five thousand dollar machines or even some sub five hundred dollar machines. Sometimes the mechanics are very similar. But the consistency and repeatability is what a service industry works for because we cannot afford downtime. We can't afford to do an engineering effort on every single part. Um, we really want that digital, you know, digital path of CAD file, you know, CAD file uploaded, interpreted, quoted, purchased, and then um, sent to machine to make. And we want to we want to keep that very, you know, continuous uh, throughout the process because that's that's throughput. You know, that's throughput. That's reliability for the customer's sake and consistency. They, they know what to expect uh, when they press go. Um, but I, I think the the takeaway that I always have is there's 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 still a lot of Wild West going on with additive. Um, so. It's not like the the CNC industry where it's like, oh, I just want a T6 temper of my aluminum 6061. And you know that you could buy that from like 90 different suppliers and, you know, have a reasonable expectation that's the same material. Um, there there are a lot of question marks. And the more and more you work up to from as a production facility, 
the more and more you have to kind of play it safe. And that's, that's why, um, you know, uh, like Zometry is a great example because it's something I know very well. You're working with, you know, OEM equipment run on uh, OEM parameters with OEM supplied material because you have a digital stability, like you have a process stability there that uh, you can actually convey to your customer. Um, the more I'm, I work down towards an engineering level, so I'll even say when I ran SLS uh, for, this, uh, for the engineering company that I, that I worked for, I was tweaking numbers all the time because I kind of just needed the shape and I was able to kind of look at it and I was like, okay, I need this to be more watertight. So I'm just going to crank up by two degrees Celsius. And I was able to do some more experimental work. Like I was able to throw different powders in, make my own custom mixes to see if it worked. But that's because I had that freedom because I was working, like I was an employee of the company in which I was working to make those parts for. So I had, I had more of that R and D, you know, mentality for it. Um, so, it just really depends on you know where that you know where you are like on what you're able to do with these printers and why you're doing that in the first place because I couldn't give that inconsistency to a customer but I could take it for myself because you know it's my machine I'm running it and you get the parts I make um, but you know as a service uh, you 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 think more and more in scale. That totally makes sense. Now, so you guys have 3D printers though, each one of you. I do not actually. No, I've I've got one. Yeah. It's paying the butt. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, when was the last time you ran it? So is that um, <laughs> actually yesterday? Actually, I was about to, I was gonna bring it up when we were talking about um, yeah. warping and stuff because it's an FDM. But I only print. Um, I'm kind of like you, I guess. I don't I don't care about the color. I print in just because I do a lot of auto automotive parts mm -hmm. uh, for all my projects. So I do like polycarbonate. PC. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm I'm trying to do this print right now, which. Um, which I'm getting some layer separation. No. I'll, I'll describe it for the listeners. So he he printed something where the the internal cavity, if you imagine a tube on the side, was printed uh, um, horizontally. And what happened was he has an over thick base to his to his part. That base was a the base actually was probably better adhered to the uh, to the base plate. And as the internal stress of the polycarbonate, which polycarbonate is, it's great tensile strength, which also means that when that material cools, it's going to pull a lot harder. It so does. he has a thin area in the middle of that uh, horizontal cylinder that just tore itself in half and he ripped his part in half. Yep. I've done that with metal parts. I've ripped stainless steel parts in half by design. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> But you can fix this with super glue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... so we, we didn't touch on metal 3D printing too much, but metal 3D printing is actually closer to FDM in a lot of ways because you're strong arming this metal down to a metal build plate. The whole thing is made in room temperature. So the power of the laser is doing these micro welds. You're building these features from the bottom to the top. And it's literally a continuous battle of the, the metal de-stressing against that build plate and who's going to win, this inch and a half thick build plate or the part. If the part wins and it peels up, which means like it pulls off from its support from the base, or it literally pulls itself off, which is you know which will cause a crack and tear down uh, down the side, like you know you you lose, like it's it's a bad day for everybody, <laughs> and and you're talking a very high overhead rate and and just you know pain in the butt because it's not like oh let me just peel this off my hands, you're like let me get this to the wire EDM or the bandsaw and then let me get this to uh to a mill to plane off the face of my support plate. And not to mention you're dealing with, you know, metal powder, which itself is dangerous. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I've been there. I've done that in metal. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's bad, new bear, bad news bears, but uh, we, we learn from that. And that's why we don't print hockey pucks in metal, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, Steven, you got anything else? Uh, or Greg? No, I, th I think I'm good. Um, it was really great to have you on again, Greg. We appreciate you uh, coming on. It's always fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg, for coming on to the podcast again and talk 3D printing with us. So, yeah, happy to talk. And obviously, like, I, you know, I, I like the stuff. So uh, um, anytime you guys need us, uh, you know, let me know. Happy to reach out and talk some more and even pick your brains if you're trying to troubleshoot your polycarbonate printers. <laughs> <laughs> might, might be. I'm running through some... Um, bed adhesion problems right now so all right yeah so with that uh greg you want to sign us out this was the macrofab engineering podcast i was your guest greg paulson
And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer with no O's or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.